The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 2. The title of my message for you today is The Statue and the Stone. And let me bring you up to speed for those of you who weren't here last week, because really today's message is part two of a message that started last week. So if you weren't here or you didn't listen, go back and and find that message on the web. You can go to our YouTube page or our website and and you can watch it. And, And this kind of piggybacks off of what we shared last week. And so King Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in the middle of the night after experiencing a troubling dream. The following morning, he gathers his wise men and demands that they reveal not only the contents of his dream, but also its interpretation. Of course, they're unable to do this, and so in his anger, the king issues an edict that calls for all the wise men of his kingdom to be executed. When the, sh- the soldier shows up at the doorstep of Daniel to carry out the king's order, he asks for more time. And he promises in exchange to provide the king with his dream. The king grants him his request and he uses that time to host a prayer meeting with his friends. Now, we're not told how long they prayed for, but what we do know is that at some point, Daniel receives divine revelation and God reveals to him the king's dream. And so he pauses to give thanks to God, who is a revealer of mysteries. And that's where we find our way back into the story. Having given thanks to God... Daniel is now ready to go before the king and reveal his dream and its meaning. So let's pick up in verse 24 of Daniel 2. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, don't execute the wise men of Babylon, but take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. So Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I've found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. So these verses set the stage for the revelation of the dream. And I want you to notice as we get started the contrast in the approach of Arioch and the approach of Daniel as they both come before the king. When Arioch comes into the king's chambers, he immediately tries to take credit for finding someone who could interpret the king's dream. He says, I found, a ki- I found a man, king. He's saying, look what I did. Aren't I great? I'm just the best employee, the kind of guy you probably are looking to promote. Never mind the fact that he was actually lying when he said that. He didn't go out and find Daniel. It was Daniel who found him. But that doesn't stop Arioch from trying to take credit. Now contrast his approach with what we see in Daniel. It's very different. I mean, if you think about it, this would have been the perfect time for for Daniel to try to advance his own career, get ahead. He could have told the king, you know, the other wise men couldn't help you, 
but I have the interpretation and I'll make it known. But notice that's not what he does. Instead of trying to capitalize on the moment and leverage it for personal gain, instead Daniel uses this platform that he's been given to point Nebuchadnezzar to the God of heaven. He says, the other guys that you tapped on the shoulder to bring you an interpretation, they all failed you. But there is a God in heaven who reveals divine mysteries. A couple of verses later, if you jump down to verse 30, we once again find Daniel deflecting the attention away from himself in an intentional way and posting the spotlight on the Lord when he says this. This mystery hasn't been revealed to me because I'm greater in wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Here we see Daniel's humility on full display. And I want you to mark that because this character trait is going to emerge as really one of the hallmarks of who Daniel is. And he's basically telling the king, look, king, I'm nobody special, but there's a God in heaven and he desperately wants you to know him. You know, Daniel's humility, in my opinion, is one of the big reasons why God was able to use him to such a great extent. And it is so different and cuts against the the grain, if you will, of how we're told to live in this world. Right? The world we live in is constantly telling us to assert ourselves. It tells us to do whatever is necessary to get noticed and to be seen. When, When you come to Scripture, it preaches the opposite message. Instead of telling us to assert ourselves, the Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. Listen, I want you to maybe jot this down if you're a note taker. According to the Bible, the path to promotion passes through the doorway of humility. The Lord never chides his disciples for wanting or pursuing greatness. He just tells them to pursue it by a different means. And it is the the doorway of humility that leads us into the path of promotion. So if you'll honor God, he'll promote you in his own way and at the proper time. And Daniel models that for us here. So he gives God credit. And then he goes on at the end of verse 28 to tell the king why God had given him this dream in the first place. And evidently, it was so that he could know what was going to happen in days to come. Some of your translation, for instance, if you're reading out of the New King James, it translates that phrase as, he wants you to know what's going to happen in the last days. This is a significant phrase that you'll find kind of sprinkled throughout both the Old and New Testaments, and and it describes a period of history that precedes the second coming of the Lord. In other words, through this dream, God was handing Nebuchadnezzar kind of a, a sweeping panoramic view or a bird's eye view of world history. So he's working his way into the future so that Nebuchadnezzar will know what is to come. Now, this ability that God has to talk about future events as though they've already happened, this is one of those things that sets him apart from every other God and every other religion or philosophy or way of thinking and living. 
And the Lord points to it throughout scripture. One example would be what he says in Isaiah 46.10. Let's read this verse together out loud. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. You know, it's striking. God says, only I can tell the future. And this is a notable difference. If you consult or look at, if you've ever done a study of world religions, you'll know that they, they barely dabble in prophetic events. They stick to just kind of truisms and things like that. But the story is much different when you consider the Bible. Only the Bible dares to delve into the realm of prophecy. And it doesn't just dip its toes in it, but it is, it is something that it does over and over and over again. In fact, did you know this? I was surprised to learn this. 27% of your Bible is prophetic in nature. So don't tell me like, ah, I'm just not really into prophecy. It's not my thing. If you're into the Bible, you'll be into prophecy because a quarter of your Bible is prophetic in nature. And it shouldn't surprise us that God can speak with certainty about future events. I mean, since God is outside of time and space, then it's easy for him to accurately predict what the future holds. And I bring all of this up because here in Daniel 2, but then as we get deeper into the book, one of the things you're going to find about the book of Daniel is that it is filled with prophecy. And some of his prophecies are so exact and precise that for years, the critics said this book must have been written after the fact because it's the only way Daniel could have predicted things so accurately. And the dream that Daniel is about to interpret before us here in chapter 2 is just another great example of God's ability to predict the future. Let's go ahead and read at the end of verse 28. Here's where Daniel says, Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the, the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. Just pause for just a moment. This is where things start to get wild. Before Daniel even tells the king about his dream, he says, you know, as you were lying there that night, here's what you were thinking about before you drifted off to sleep. And as he says this, I can picture the king's eyes growing wide and his jaw beginning to drop as he remembers back and realizes that's exactly what I was thinking about. Obviously, there's no way that Daniel could have known this outside of divine revelation. And so already he's revealing that he knows things that no mere man could know. And he goes on in verse 31 to describe the king's dream. And here we see an image of a statue. And by the way, that's the first point in your outline this morning, this statue. We're going to read a lengthy portion of scripture here. So pick up with me in there, verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, the chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings 
The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory, and in your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky, wherever they live. He has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay." As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will... It will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. You got to love Daniel's confidence, his chutzpah here. After finishing, he doesn't ask timidly, how did I do? Did I get it right? But instead, he boldly states, this was your dream. And I'm sure he could see it reflected in the face of the king that he got it right. And he says the interpretation is trustworthy. So let's, let's just dive in and, and, and dissect this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. It's of this massive, glorious, beautiful, dazzling statue. Its head is made of gold, chest and arms are made of silver, the belly and thighs are made of bronze, and the legs are made of iron. And Daniel goes on to tell the king that the image he saw represents four different world empires that would arise on the world stage and succeed the Babylonian empire. He starts by describing the head, and the head represents Babylon, or more specifically, he points to the king and says, you're the head of gold. And when Daniel tells that to King Nebuchadnezzar, I bet he's like, all right, you know, I'm doing pretty good here. And the reason he says that is because of all the kings who have ever lived, it's doubtful whether there has ever been another king who has exerted such absolute authority where power was centralized in a single individual more so than with King Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled the entire world. His word was law. And and so keep in mind that Babylon is the world empire at this time. And and, and, and it, it felt like they would go on in that same state forever. I mean, the thought of Babylon falling was unimaginable at this point. It was thought to be impregnable, unconquerable. And yet, we know historically that that's exactly what happened. Within just 66 years of a rising to world domination, Babylon fell in just a single night to the second 
world empire that's mentioned, the Medo-Persian Empire, and all of this happened in accordance with biblical prophecies, the one that you have here in Daniel 2, as well as others that are found in books like Isaiah. And so we come now to the chest and arms of silver, which is represented by the Medo-Persian Empire. You say, well, why is it silver and not gold? And it speaks of the inferiority of this kingdom to Babylon in the sense that power was dispersed and less centralized. While Babylon was an absolute monarchy in the truest sense of the term, Medo-Persia was an oligarchy where power was distributed equally at the top between a handful of people. And so the Medo-Persian Empire rules for 208 years, and then it gives way to the third world empire that's listed here, which is the Grecian Empire. <clears throat> now, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Greece, the Grecian Empire is represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. And again, we have a decrease in the value of this metal, which speaks of a dispersion of power because Greece was ruled by um, an aristocracy. So more people had control. Power is less centralized. And I want to share with you the story briefly of how Greece came into power because it's kind of fascinating. It really was more or less formed or achieved significance under a guy by the name of Philip of Macedon. And at his death, power was bequeathed to his son, whose name was Alexander. We know him today as Alexander the Great. And he gains control of, of Greece as a 20-year-old kid. And, and he goes out and he begins to conquer the known world. And the reason he became known as Alexander the Great is because within just 11 years, he swept through the entire ancient world and conquered all the lands. He never lost a single battle. And history tells us that when he arrived in Babylon at just the age of 31, the ripe old age of 31, he began to weep because he lamented that there were no more lands or peoples left for him to conquer. And so, you know, a year later at 32, he gets drunk and goes out on a cold night and gets pneumonia and dies. And after his death, the, the, the lands of Greece was dispersed between his four top generals and power slowly deteriorated until the next great kingdom arose, which was the Roman Empire. Now, if you go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Rome is symbolized by the two legs of iron. Again, we see a de decrease in the value of the metal because of a decrease or a dispersion of power at the top. Rome is ruled by a democratic imperialism where you've got the Senate and then Caesar on top. And, and so there are the two legs representative of Rome. And this is appropriate because if you think back, Rome had not one but two capitals. The capital of the Eastern Roman Empire was Constantinople, while the capital of the Western Roman Empire was there in Rome. And so the fact that Rome is pictured by these two legs speaks to that, but it also speaks of the length of their rule, right? Well, the, the other kingdoms that are mentioned ruled for various lengths of time. I think Babylon was 66 years, Greece ruled for 208 years, and 
And uh, I'm sorry, the Medo-Persians ruled for 208 years and Greece ruled for 186 years, but um, Rome ruled for 500 years. So you have the long leg signifying that. Also, iron, it ties into Rome because you have the, the, the sixth Roman legion, famous battalion of soldiers. It was also known as the Legio Ferrata, and that, that phrase speaks of the iron legion. Why? Because this battalion of soldiers were the first to carry iron shields into battle. So it all fits. It's all very exact and specific. So you have these four kingdoms that are pictured in this image that, that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about. But then there's the toes and the feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. What's all that about? Well, if you think about it, Rome was never conquered. They were never overthrown by anyone. Instead of falling from without, Rome crumbled, as it were, from within through rot and moral decay. That's according to historians such as Francis Schaeffer. Now, since the fall of Rome, there hasn't ever been another world empire that achieved total world domination to the same extent as these other four um, kingdoms that are mentioned. I mean, many have tried the Huns and, and Islam and Stalin and Hitler and Napoleon, and some came closer than others, but none ultimately succeeded, which, which leads us into the final part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Because after the legs of iron, you have the feet and the toes, the mixture of the iron and clay. And I believe this is where, from our vantage point, the, the, the movie or the dream moves out of the realm of history and into the realm of prophecy. Let me explain. I believe that the, the feet and the toes in Nebuchadnezzar's dream describe the one world government that will come on the world stage just prior to the return of Jesus. It's described in various parts of the Bible. And again, this is significant because when the dream was first given, everything was future. But we have the added advantage of hindsight and we can trace these world empires and there's this last one that remains. And it's this, at this point that it becomes, you know, very, very pertinent to us. In particular, as we look around and we are hearing in the media today calls for and the need for a one world government. We're seeing at the same time more and more power being consolidated in fewer and fewer institutions. Have you noticed this? Three that you should pay particular attention to include the World Health Organization, or the WHO, the World Economic Forum, and the United Nations. In fact, it was just after COVID-19, the pandemic that struck the world, that the World Economic Forum set forth an initiative calling for a great global reset. You're familiar with this language. And through this initiative, they're seeking to build a unified one world system that would cover everything from our food to our data to our governance and our vaccine status. And so we see things taking shape and the, the players kind of coming into position for the realization of the end of Daniel's dream. Now, at this point, a lot of people are thinking, well, what about the United States? Where do we factor into biblical prophecy. And while I can't say for sure, there are a few clues that perhaps might speak to this. For instance, the mixture of the iron 
and the clay in this statue. It seems to suggest that to some degree, the one world government that will rise on the world stage in the last days will have aspects of the previous Roman Empire as part of its makeup. Now, in light of that, I do have to say, I find it interesting to consider all the parallels that exist between our own governmental structure and that of Rome. I mean, if you think about it, many of the features of our constitution, including its system of checks and balances between the three branches of our government and and things like term limits and age requirements, these were all borrowed from Rome. And in fact, there are many instances where our founding fathers just copied verbatim what, what the Roman constitution said, like words like senate and capital and committee. These words all come directly from Rome. So am I suggesting here that America is the revived Roman Empire and we're the ten toes? No, no, I'm not going that far, but I'm just bringing some things to light to point out that's interesting. Other Bible scholars say that it has to arise out of Europe and there are verses to support that as well. And yet, while we can't say for certain what shape the final one world government's gonna take, one thing we know for sure is that at some point, the whole world is going to be forced to come under the rule of these 10 kings. Daniel talks about this at length in chapter 10. We also see it in Revelation. And so the world will be divided into 10 regions. Could it be that there's some cataclysmic event, God forbid, a nuclear event or the rapture of the church that that sparks a need for the world to kind of coalesce and come together? All of these are possibilities. However, on that point, I just want to mention this as well for your consideration. It's interesting. The United Nations has already split the world into eight zones or regions And it's targeted these regions, and each one is divided by populations of a billion people. You can Google this after the service if you want. Now, could these zones or regions play a role in the shaping of this one world government that is ruled by 10 kings? It's possible. I mean, there's eight, not 10. It started with five, it grew to six, and now it's at eight. So we could very easily see that happening. But let's go a little deeper. Something else that we know from Scripture is that after the one world government is formed, there will arrive on the stage a dynamic leader that is going to arise uh, out of the ten, and he's going to assume control over the whole world. Daniel talks about him extensively in chapter 7 when we get there, and the Bible also refers to him in Revelation as the Antichrist. You've heard that term. And this guy is going to burst onto the scene and he's going to be able to accomplish what no other person has been able to do to date. And that is, he's going to get Israel and her neighbors to sign a peace treaty. He's going to bring peace to the Middle East. And this is something that the world desperately needs. Just look at what's happening over there right now as war is spilling out throughout the Middle East on account of what happened on October 7th. Well, this guy's gonna come on the scene. He's gonna bring peace to Israel and by extension, the entire world. And he's gonna do so by getting them to agree to a seven-year peace treaty. Now, the Bible refers to this time period as the tribulation period. And at first, it'll feel like heaven on earth. 
You know, we think of the tribulation as this horrific time where people are dying and all this horrible stuff happens, and it is that. But it starts with peace on earth, and he's going to be hailed as a Messiah. And then at the midway point of the tribulation, this figure named the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and demand to be worshipped as God. And this ushers in the final three and a half years of human history known as the Great Tribulation. Now, this period of history culminates in a final battle in which the Antichrist leads the armies of this world in attack against the Lord who is returning. Can you imagine the armies of this world pointing their guns skyward and trying to take down the Lord? Revelation 19 describes the battle for us, and I put battle in quotation marks because it's not a battle. It says a sword proceeds from the mouth of the Lord and he destroys his enemies and the devil and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of hell and the Lord's kingdom is finally and firmly established here on earth and he sets up his throne in Jerusalem and he rules for a thousand years and restores the earth to an Eden-like state and we will rule with him in that age to come. Amen. Now... That's a lot to digest. But this part of the dream is characterized by this vision Nebuchadnezzar has of a rock coming down from heaven, cut without hands, that grinds the kingdoms of this world into fine dust and then blows them away and then fills the earth. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. It's the culmination of the ages. It's the answer to the cry of every child of God for the last two millennia that says, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That day is coming. We've talked about the statue. Let's close by talking about the stone. This is the second point in your outline. There are so many instances in scripture where the God of heaven is referred to as a rock. The psalmist calls him the rock of our salvation and the rock that is higher than I. And we're to take shelter in him during the storms. Correspondingly, in the New Testament, Jesus is also referred to as a rock. He is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. In light of all of that, I believe that the stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that comes down from heaven, that smashes the kingdoms of this world and fills the whole earth is none other than Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. This is the moment that all of heaven is looking forward to and marching towards the return of the king. And he is coming soon. You know, we're, we're looking at all of the, the things that are happening in the world, and it can be unsettling. So I want to leave you with three takeaways. I want to give you handles for this sermon. It's been information or content heavy. You guys have done a great job staying with me and paying attention. But what are we to do with all of this? I, I don't want to be a fear monger. And I, just, I don't want to sow seeds of fear in your heart. Ah, things are falling apart. No, no, no. God has given us some handles through this chapter that I think we can implement in our lives. And the first one of this, we learn from this dream that God reigns supreme in the affairs of men. Amen. Empires rise and empires fall. 
Kings emerge and kings go, but the Lord of heaven rules above them all. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And someday soon he is going to return. But just so you know, right now he's not, you know, hands on his head or wringing his hands or biting his nails. He is seated on the throne in heaven. And at the right time, he will return to the earth to establish his throne and usher in his kingdom without end. God reigns supreme, and we see that illustrated through this dream. The second takeaway for us this morning is this. The end has already been written. I love that. That means for God, there are no surprises. God never goes, wow, I really didn't see that coming. (laughs) No, he knows how the story is going to play out, and he's told us. And this can give us peace, tremendous peace. When you look around at a world that's falling apart, you can be settled by the knowledge that it's falling into place and everything is happening according to God's predetermined plan. So what's our job in the the midst of all the chaos? To keep our eyes on the Lord. You know, we've been talking this morning about prophecy and and there are so many aspects of prophecy that are are fuzzy and and uncertain and confusing. But one thing that is crystal clear from scripture is the outcome of the whole thing. If you read through the book of Revelation, in the end, the final analysis, I'll summarize the entire book for you in two words. Some of you know them. God wins. That's how our story plays out. I've read the end of the book. I've seen the movie. And based on his track record throughout history, every word he says has come to pass. We know with certainty that so too, in the end, God will prevail. His kingdom will come. And so, while it's fun for us to prognosticate and to speculate and to guess about, you know, how things are going to play out, at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't tell us to be looking for the Antichrist. It tells us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. So we keep our eyes on him, and as we do that, we find our souls at rest and at peace. Here's one more takeaway for you. The first one is is that God reigns supreme in the affairs of men. The second is the end has already been written. And here's the third takeaway. We learn from this dream that God wants to reveal himself to the world through us. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. The whole reason God gives this dream to Nebuchadnezzar is because he wants to reveal himself to him. That's why he raises up Daniel. And that's why he removes him and and takes him from his home in Jerusalem and brings him 900 miles away to Babylon. And it's why he has him there in the courts of the king. And it's why he gives him wisdom and understanding dreams and being able to interpret them. He did all of this because the Lord cared for a pagan king named, named Nebuchadnezzar and he wanted him to know him. And we see that playing out throughout his story. Look with me in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel. He paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. They made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. 
Go back to what the king says to Daniel. He calls his God the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the reveal of mysteries. He's grabbing hold of Daniel's language, and he's regurgitating it to him there. Now, is King Nebuchadnezzar a believer? Not yet. We'll see that in the coming weeks, but he's on his way. He's on a faith journey, and all of this is part of God's plan. God has a heart for the nations, and we see that illustrated throughout this book. God had a plan for this Babylonian king. In fact, this is so fascinating. From chapter 2, verse 4 of Daniel to chapter 7, verse 28, the language in which the book is written changes from Hebrew to Aramaic. Why would God do that? Because Aramaic at the time was the language of the world. Hebrew was the language of God's chosen people. And since the the emphasis in these chapters is on God's plan for the unfolding of the ages, the age of the Gentiles, God speaks in a language the world can understand. And by the way, what he did in Daniel's day for the sake of Nebuchadnezzar, he's doing in our day for the sake of the lost. And the language that he's using to speak to them is you. God wants to reach this world through you. In fact, I love this verse. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 2, and 3. Let's read it together. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Just like we have this book and we hear the voice of the Lord, Paul says that you're like a living letter. He would write these letters that became the Bible. You're you're walking, talking, breathing revelations of God's love to a lost world, to a hurting world, to a broken world. And God wants to speak his truth through you. I mean, have you ever considered the idea that maybe the place where you work surrounded by people who are godless and pagan and reprobate, that God might have strategically placed you right in that spot amongst those people because he wants to use you to share his love, to share his grace, to be a messenger of the gospel. You are a living epistle. Daniel was able to be used by God to influence a pagan environment and bring a godless king to faith because he was available He was humble, and he was obedient to the call of God on his life. And you can have a similar influence in our Babylon today with the Nebuchadnezzars in our world as you yield to the Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.